Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. I'm Dr. David Fowler, Vice President of the Gonstead Clinical Studies Society, and my guest today is Dr. David Geary. Dr. Geary practices in Burnsville, Minnesota. He's a 1991 graduate of Northwestern College of Chiropractic, where he currently serves as an adjunct professor. In addition to being a Gonstead diplomate, he's past president and a current board member of Gonstead Methodology Institute, and a current board member of both the Gonstead Clinical Studies Society and the C.S. Gonstead Chiropractic Foundation. Today, Dr. Geary will be talking with us about the thoracic spine. This area of the spine tends to get taken for granted because of its high affinity for compensation. Dr. Geary is going to talk with us about some special considerations for adjusting this area, but even more importantly, he will talk about the neurology of this area and why specificity is so important to getting great results. So without any further ado, Dr. David Geary. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Dr. Fowler. Appreciate the invite and, and good to be with you too. Could you start off today by telling us a little bit about how you got into chiropractic and more specifically how you got into Gonstead chiropractic? Yeah, so that brings up memories. Um, I was um, a sophomore in high school and I wrestled and I hurt my back. I got, I got slammed down hard on the mat and uh, low back troubles. And um, my mother, my mother was uh, growing up on the farm. They always went to osteopaths. And so eventually, you know, we went to the MD first and nothing, no help. And uh, finally got to a chiropractor and uh, he took an x-ray and he explained what was wrong. And I have an L5 spondylolisthesis and basically it was traumatically triggered and injured. And so he, uh, he cared for me. He wasn't even constant, but he adjusted, you know, the sacrum. He knew conceptually what needed to be done. And um, that had an impact on me. I never forgot that experience. And uh, that carried with me through college. And I remember getting a um, summer job. I got tired of roofing. And when I roofed, I wasn't the actual guy that laid the shingles. I was what they call a gopher. So I go for this and I go for that. And I finally thought, you know what, if I'm really going to consider chiropractic, I, I should work in an office and see what it's like. So I, I got a position working for a chiropractor who uh, uh, utilized the activator technique. And um, I had very little respect for the guy. But I was doing computerized testing for muscles. And I was intrigued by that. And I thought, this is, this is great. I literally saw patients that would come into his clinic in tough shape. And, and I would say, you know, a good 50, 60% of them got improvement. And I thought, my gosh, if this guy can do it, anybody can do it, you know. And so that really fueled me into, you know, chiropractic and, uh, and did my undergrad, finished undergrad, and then, you know, went to Northwestern uh, Chiropractic College. And I was in my fifth trimester, and um, there was a girl I was dating at the time who I was crazy about, who's now my wife. And um, she said, you know, you need to check out the Gonstead uh, technique, come to a seminar. She had been going, she was with the group, you know, that they were pretty diehard committed, uh, club members. And one of my good friends in my, I was a trimester ahead of Steph. Uh, one of my good friends, classmates was John Jorger. He was from Switzerland. We're good friends, but John was, <clears throat> he was a Gonstead club president and very arrogant about it. And I always thought, you know, all oh, you gondroids, you think you know everything. And, and that's, that's true. I mean, you get excited about something, you learn something and, and you really want others to know about it. And they had that passion, but so many of, you know, us and myself included interpreted that as, you know, you think you're arrogant, you know, everything. Well, anyway, I went to uh, a seminar because uh, Steph said I should go. And I really was crazy about my wife now. So I said, yeah, I'll go. It was a cervical chair. It was Scotty Mycel, Dr. Mycel. And um, I'll never forget when he taught how to look at a film, running a scope, palpating, and setting a bone specifically. The light just went on. And then I realized this is what this is all about. This is chiropractic. This is taking a specific approach to figuring out how to fix 
a subluxation. And uh, from then on, it was just, you know, never look back. <laughs> I've been involved with, uh, you know, Gunstead, um, you know, ever since. So um, that's my story in the early yeah. days. Yeah, that's great. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the thoracic spine. And when I think of thoracics, I am always reminded of a quote by Einstein when he said, things should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. And I think that there's often a tendency to oversimplify the thoracics, uh, especially when we're students, yeah. because they're easy to make noise with. And we start getting some rattles and we start making some noise and think, oh, I've got that taken care of. Now I got to worry about pelvic bench and cervicals because <laughs> I got the thoracics done. Mm -hmm. um, and as you start getting into practice, you start realizing that some of the cases that will give you the most trouble are thoracic cases because you're not getting it set right or that kind of thing. So um, that's most of what I wanted to talk about today. Do you agree with that, that thoracics sometimes end up being the thing you think you have mastered first and maybe come around to think you maybe you have it mastered last? You know, I would, I would certainly agree with that. I think there's a big difference between um, uh, rattling a joint and setting a bone and, um, and the objectivity that goes along with it as far as identifying the subluxation, truly where it's coming from, is it a major subluxation? Is it a compensatory? How to interpret that? And, uh, and then to fix it and to monitor that objectively, you know, with the tools that we have within Gonstead. Um, and I've always said to students in, in teaching, and that is, if you truly want to practice Gonstead, it's not a technician. You're a doctor. You have to think like a doctor. But you have to have you have to have the ability to identify where that subluxation is coming from, and then the tools to fix it and monitor that correction, and know when to leave it alone. And um, yeah, the thoracic spine is easily easy to rattle and make a lot of movement, but are you fixing a subluxation? And at the end of the day, that's that's what we're trying to do and accomplish. So yes, but in the learning curve, it's so important to feel confident about fixing something and setting a bone. But I think from day one, no matter what, if it's the thoracic spine, especially, you still want to, you know, use the tools to hone in on finding it and fixing it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've got like, say, say somebody who's new in practice, and maybe they're struggling a little, do you have any tips that you would give for how, little things that might be able to make it a little bit better for trying to get some of those results? Um, just from mistakes, maybe you made at the beginning or things you've seen that you realize now you do them because it just works better? Dr. Gonstead always had his trump card of static palpation. And um, uh, instrumentation is, is one of those things that, you know, honestly, if we're truly honest with ourselves, you know, it takes a lifetime to, to master, to develop, to feel really confident with. And so anytime there's a question on an instrument reading, which in the beginning happens so much, like, yeah, that's a reading there. No, okay, there's a reading there. Um, and that has to do with the, the, the doctor's skill level and just the ability to have a, a scope gliding easily. So palpation, static palpation has to be the confirmation of where that subluxation is. And I think one of the most important things we could do in the beginning especially at the beginning and all the way through our, our careers is to gently take your index and, and middle finger and just gently glide down the spine while the patient's in a cervical chair. And you're just trying to identify where's that edema, where's that spongy pocket of fluid that I'm going to make a mark there. So when I run my scope, I really want to truly identify, is that where that pressure is coming from? Because it should all funnel into identifying where that subluxation is. So Light, static, gliding palpation really allows you to, and when you go down the spine, that glide gets a little bogged down when you hit that edema. And you can close your eyes after doing it enough, and you can really feel it without even having to look. And that really can identify where you need to be. So I think that's one important thing. That's uh, a great Yep. One important thing to really focus in on is just that static palpation part. And um, another thing, you know, just visualization, when you're looking at the thoracic spine, when you see that raised paraspinal musculature, um, that's most likely on the side of the, of the uh, transverse, the rotational side, the body rotation side. 
And it's really good to, you know, look at a, look at a patient, look at the film and start seeing correlation, you know, and, and structural correlation with what you see on the actual physical body of that patient to get your eyes clued in on what you're going to be looking at. I think, I think those are two important things. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Another question I get a lot from students, especially new ones, is um, they always ask me this. How do you determine when you're going to use the high-low and when you're going to use the knee chest? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the practical answer is when the first one didn't work. <laughs> that's, 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 yeah, that's a sad truth. <laughs> I, listen, I think um, Dr. Gonstead coined this. He said it, and I think it's so true. It resonates. It's a universal truth. Too many chiropractors are over-manipulating the spine too many times and too hard. And the too hard part is, I think, what we want to identify here. It's not the force that you use and the, and the, uh, the strength of an adjustment. It's the speed and precision. And that allows the patient to be at their most relaxed state. As soon as you start to apply force and as soon as you try and create movement there against the body's will, so to speak, you're going to get into trouble and you're going to start creating bad clinical habits. So I think that the knee chest is wonderful. I love the knee chest table. I have an extended uh, thoracic piece that Dr. O'Hara made so that you have a little more support, you know, uh, than the standard um, uh, chest thoracic piece. But again, that knee chest table allows the, the front of the spine to open up just a little bit more. And that allows you to set that bone, um, you know, with more precision and less, less energy, less force, you know, onto the patient. So I love the knee chest table, but it's not for everybody. If you have a thin, uh, petite frame patient, the first choice should be the high-low most of the time uh, because they need that support underneath them. If you, it's, it's too easy to have someone who is, you know, thin or frail or, or that petite frame and you get on the knee chest and you start applying that pressure and, and they, they guard. And you don't want to create that subconscious involuntary response to fight you with an adjustment. So in that case, you know, that the first choice there would be, a, I think, a high-low. Anybody that is, you know, 65 plus, my first thought is high-low. You want to have that that thoracic resistance uh, allow you to, you know, or allow the patient to feel more at ease, more support. A successful adjustment is 80% patient relaxation. And, and, and then your specific correction and line of drive and and setting all takes place in a more fluid fashion because the patient's receptive, you know, to your, to your adjustment. Yeah. There's two things you said that I kind of want to play off of, but with the high low, I, that's usually my response is it's whether or not they need that comfort, that pushback underneath. And so I keep my spring set pretty stiff. And I told them the reason why is if they don't need a stiff spring, then they don't really need the high low. Yeah. So it, I need that pushback. Um, and then, the other one is kind of as you were talking about how when you start feeding into a joint, how the patient responds. It's the age-old action-reaction. Mm -hmm. So one of the things to develop on cervicals, thoracic, anything, is that as you start to apply pressure, how does the patient respond? Mm -hmm. And as you start to feel those different responses, you can start to realize either they're comfortable, either maybe they don't trust me, maybe they're in pain. And each one of those feels a little bit different. And you start to figure out which one it is, and then you start to develop solutions for how to get past them. You know, and every year gets better. You know, the more the more confident you are with your skill level, uh, then it's amazing. You start to think, man, I'm getting easier patients to adjust. Well, that's not necessarily true because the better you get, the more complicated cases you get. But you're just getting better. You're developing that that um, clinical skill. But the one thing that's underemphasized uh, in our profession is is the chiropractic uh, philosophy of it's an art. And that art form is a developmental thing. There's plasticity involved. You know, when you are physically doing a skill set that involves a, a neuromuscular uh, relationship, it's a whole neurological sequence of events. You know, you go to seminars and you learn A through Z on setups and you practice setups and you break it down mentally. It's always 
step one, step two, step three. When you adjust somebody in practice, it's one fluid movement. And setting a bone is an art. The more specific and precise you can do it, it just means you've gotten better at that art. There's still the science of it, you know, and the philosophy too that goes with it. But the great thing about chiropractic is there's an art form to it. And that's dependent on the clinician and, and how willing they are to develop that. And it just comes with, I believe, being curious and consciously aware of what you're accomplishing, what you're trying to do with that adjustment. Why are you doing that with the patient? What's your, what's the benefit they're receiving? And then the learning curve and the, and the skill set gets better and better as you continue to feed into that. Yeah, that's the beauty of the art is that even though we're all the same, we're also all different. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. Like we all have these little bit different things about how we do things because it is an art in the end. It's kind of like when you judge a painter, you judge them by the painting, not by the process by which they painted it. Mm. It's what, was, what, what came out or, or same with music. It's what does it sound like? What's the end result? And yeah, there's a, definitely a beauty in that. You know, I've... Um... I, I think it's it isn't emphasized enough that um, you know there's different camps and schools of thought within Gonstead as far as in the cervical chair do you have a staggered stance do you have a parallel stance do you offset you know where's the elbow Dr. Troxel had uh, his stabilization arm was you know different maybe than than somebody else's but here's the point Dr. Gonstead said. I don't care how you move that vertebrae if they have to stand on their head to do it. Just figure out which one and which direction it needs to move to fix the subluxation. And so often we get hung up on, on some of the minutiae and we just got to step back and look at the forest instead of the trees. And the big picture is why are we trying to accomplish this adjustment? And um, well, we can't do it here. Well, who said you can't? Why? Does that, is that where it needs to move? In other words, the slot table that's been, you know, in existence for a number of years has a very valuable place, you know, with the technique and especially in the thoracic spine. It provides that resistance more than the high-low provides. Right. And, um, and so that's, again, moving beyond this technician mindset and in, in being a doctor and considering here's our problem here. For not here here's a good case. When you have ligament damage on a, uh, on a spine, thoracic, especially upper lumbar, and you have a lateral listhesis, you know, on the uh, listing. Well, that's not something necessarily that is in the, in the chapters um, that's identified. So how do you address that? Well, you just have to think it through. How are you going to fix it? What do you need to do to put that vertebrae back in its proper alignment position so that nature can heal? And that's where you have to be a doctor. You have to figure it out. And that's the whole Gonstead mindset, which is find where the subluxation is, accept that, and then fix it. And the leave it alone part is the pink elephant in the room. When do you leave it alone? Oh, maybe we'll get to that, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe we'll figure that one out. Um, yeah, I ag agree with that. I remember um, starting in practice, the first time I had a patient, who their symptoms in their x-ray didn't match anything that I had learned in, in school or learned through Gonstead, I was kind of like, well, now what? And then I, that was when I realized they didn't teach me how to handle everything. They taught me to think, and I need to use that thinking yes. to figure out how to handle this. And then once I realized that, then it was like, well, then I need to be thinking like this on every patient. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, okay, now I'm going through this evolution of realizing where I really need to be compared to where I thought I needed to be. And it's a major growth step to realize that. You know, and it's a, another good analogy, uh, thinking along those lines, is you can teach someone to fish or you can keep bringing them fish. And the Gonstead whole system is based on we want doctors to learn how to catch fish, to learn how to fix subluxations. You shouldn't have to memorize something. Uh, well, there's that's, you need to be aware, you know, like, for instance, the sacral rule, the SASIN rule, things like that, understanding it. But you have to have logic and you have to have a thought process. Uh, you don't want to just spit out a recipe, uh, you know, for how you manage this condition. Well, wait a minute. Well, the next patient might be completely different. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then with, so with thoracics, we get to an area that this might consume most of our time is the autonomic neurology of the whole thing, because we are taught 
in the super simplified version that thoracics are sympathetic. Therefore, if you want to increase sympathetics, you adjust thoracics and the whole mixing system. So can you talk a little bit about how you manage that issue and how we really should think about these things uh, when it comes to adjusting thoracics? Do we adjust it? Do we leave it alone and just try to do parasympathetics? How do we manage the process of knowing what neurological influence we want? That's a big topic, Dr. Fowler. It is huge. <laughs> and uh, one thing I want to add, I forgot that uh, tips on thoracic adjusting, and I do this on almost 85, 90% of my patients. Before an adjustment is given in the thoracic spine, what's very helpful is to have the patient lift their chin forward, especially if you make a failed attempt the first time. If you have them simply tilt their chin, lift it forward, it opens up the front of the thoracic spine and enables that bone to set just a little easier. Now, as far as the thoracic spine and the autonomic nervous system, I think truly we have to understand and, and consider um, a subluxation and what that is. And we can go back to D.D. Palmer and uh, in that original early pioneering days, he was spot on. Causes of subluxation are toxins, traumas, and thoughts. And he, and he spelt thoughts, T-H-O-T-S, which I think is interesting. It's funny, interesting, you know. And we spend a lot of time in the Gunstead, you know, world with the, um, the traumas, the mechanical aspect of it, and rightfully so. And, and I think the fun part of a, being a student, and I say student, whether you're at the beginning stage or a student, you know, in, in practice for 30, 40 years, you're still a student of chiropractic, you're still learning. But I, I think one of the things that's important is that um, you're always trying to figure out how to get that patient better and understand how a subluxation needs to be addressed and fixed. And one thing that Dr. Gonstead never had to the extent we have it today, and we probably don't have time to get into it, is just the whole chemical and the uh, toxins that was referenced by D.D. Palmer. And what we know since the 90s, 1990s were declared the year of brain study investigation research. And um, that began in the 90s and that's carried on, you know, to this day. And so now we have terms like plasticity and most, most uh, students and, and younger doctors especially are aware of what neuroplasticity is and how that pattern changes and, and for the good or the bad. And we weigh all that out. And when you're examining a patient and you find a subluxation, say, on T7, you have to consider, you know, um, what is the complaint? Does the patient have a complaint, first of all? So let's just throw out something. Um, let's say the patient has a duodenal ulcer. And there's a difference between a gastric and a duodenal ulcer. And, um, and that's where you have to interpret and understand where you find a subluxation, what should be adjusted and what should be considered to be left alone on that particular visit. But a duodenal ulcer is different than a gastric ulcer in that it's primarily a sympathetic problem. And when I say sympathetic problem, I mean in the region of the sympathetics. <clears throat> I don't, I think it's very, it's a slippery slope. When you wanna when you wanna start using the terms, you have a block, or or an in inhibition, or you have a facilitation. All those can be misleading. I think a good way to look at this is where's the pressure disturbance in the in the spine in the nervous system, and as it relates to that, what are the ramifications that this patient is experiencing? Where's the major subluxation related to that that pattern that we're seeing? So let's back up. Autonomic nervous system, of course, is broken down into sympathetic and parasympathetic. But one thing that's not mentioned much enough is the enteric, which is a complete brain, essentially, from the mouth to the anus. And, um, and it has its own um, uh, reflexes that have sympathetic and parasympathetic-like responses. But what's important to understand in the autonomic nervous system when it relates to um, uh, especially visceral health, which is what it regulates, it is motor only. So within the autonomic nervous system, 
It's motor only. It's on the efferent side. The afferent side or the sensory portion um, uh, of the uh, nervous system is separate from the autonomic nervous system in that it is not sympathetic or parasympathetic. Uh, rather, it has sympathetic or parasympathetic-like responses. So what do I mean by that? Okay. <clears throat> we have, uh, uh, for instance, um, with respect to a duodenal ulcer, you have to understand what's going on. A duodenal ulcer oftentimes is because you have an alkaline environment in the stomach because of a lack of secretions that occur from a sympathetic subluxation pattern. So the sympathetics are responsible for our fight or flight response. They will increase our blood flow to our heart and lungs. They increase the blood flow to our, our, uh, our peripheral muscles, our uh, sweat glands. The parasympathetic system is responsible for peristalsis, you know, digestion, assimilation of food, nutrients, and um, endocrine secretions increasing or, or uh, glandular secretions uh, increasing that and increasing organ speed. So you have to look at is, are we dealing with something where there's brakes or there's an accelerator? And um, with a duodenal ulcer scenario, you've got a brake on. The sympathetics are subluxated. They are the primary disturbance of where that nerve is interrupted, that nerve function is interrupted. And their responsibility with respect to the stomach is it decreases then the glandular secretions of, of pepsin and uh, acids and mucus that normally will break down the food. So when you have that in alkaline environment in the stomach because you have a lack of acidity, digestive aid, and you eat a meal... Okay, the combination of eating a meal, there's tactile stimulation that occurs starting in our, our, um, our oral cavity. You have the parotid glands are releasing digestive enzymes, and that starts to even break down that food as it goes down the esophagus and into the stomach. And, of course, once it's in the stomach, that's another mechanical stimulation for the digestive uh, glands to work in the stomach. So you have all these things occurring. And you have mucus that's being, you know, secreted to neutralize the effects of this, of this acid production too. But it's all designed to do what? Digest food. That's normal. But when you have a subluxation within the T5 through 9 or sometimes even that 10th thoracic level, clinically what happens is there is a reduction in the whole digestive process. So you have a, a reduction in digestive aid in the stomach. And the net effect of that is you have... An hour or two after eating, the patient will get indigestion, upset stomach, gas. They're in a lot of pain. And um, that's your first clue when you have a, a patient that has stomach uh, uh, upset or disorder is you want to find out how soon after eating does that bother you? Well, it's an hour or two later. Or a, a very common response is, you know, when I'm in bed at night, I'll feel heartburn. I'll feel that burning coming up into my esophagus. Okay, in your mind, the first thought process you want to have is this is a, a likely a sympathetic major subluxation pattern going on. So you want to identify where you find that pressure, and, and most likely the major pressure is going to be T5 through 9 or even down to 10. And here's how that works. When you have an alkaline environment in the stomach, you have peristalsis that's impaired. It doesn't break down properly. And what happens, of course, after breaking it up in the stomach, it, it creates a chyme, literally C-H-Y-M-E it's called. And that chyme then goes and it moves into the duodenum, the small intestine. Now, once that mechanically takes place, the body is, is physiologically, there is a neurological reflex that occurs that allows the duodenum to start releasing digestive acids. And those acids are released into this chyme to further break down and, and beginning to assimilate, helping to assimilate the, the nutrition to get absorbed into the, into the bloodstream of the body. So after a period of time, that uh, acidity, you know, needs to stop. And there is a, a feedback loop that goes on between the pancreas and the stomach. 
and the pancreas <clears throat> will release a um, uh, sodium bicarbonate, which is a neutralizer that helps to neutralize the acids in the duodenum. Now, there's a, a chemical messenger that must take place in order for that neutralization to, to occur. And that is there must be an acid environment in the stomach. And that, that sense, that neurological sense is picked up and it relays that message back to the pancreas. And the pancreas then is able to shut down the uh, production of acid. And the sodium bicarbonate is released to do that. But if you have an alkaline environment in the stomach, because you have a sympathetic region subluxation, that message never gets to the pancreas to release the sodium uh, bicarbonate to neutralize the acidity in the duodenum. So what happens is the duodenal wall starts to get excoriated and there's not enough, not enough lining and mucus uh, to prevent that acid from starting to erode away in the duodenal wall. And so that's your, that's your symptom is an hour or two after eating, the patient has an awful stomach ache, you know, and they get some help if they'll eat a little bit. The little bit of food then does what? It starts to increase acidity in the stomach. See, and then that acidity helps the pancreas neutralize the already secreting acid in the duodenum so it can neutralize that. But that's what the patient will tell you is, is typically they get a little relief when they eat. And so that's the neurophysiology of why you would never want to touch in, in the vast majority of cases with a duodenal ulcer. You would never want to be in the parasympathetic region. Why? Well, the parasympathetic, you're going you're gonna to reduce the glandular secretions even further with a, a, an adjustment in that region. So that's just going to make it worse. So that's a good thought approach to how you would consider uh, why you should consider finding the major subluxation and staying in one system uh, as opposed to mixing it, you know, like what unfortunately is taught in school. Well, you got to hit them all. You got to hit all the origins for the, the vagus is involved too. Don't you know, you got to adjust the upper cervical and free up that pressure on the vagus, you know, and that's, Dr. Gonstead referred to chiropractic as, as the treater practice, you know. You, you manipulate up and down the spine, and the patients get virtually the same thing every time they come in and leave. And you never get them better. Or you, you stimulate one time, or you inhibit the other time, and you never figure out how to fix that subluxation on an individual. And, and you miss out on learning, but especially helping a fellow human being. And understanding the neurology of how that takes place is so critical. Um, now, one thing we should talk about before we maybe contrast a gastric ulcer is, is how does the autonomic nervous system then communicate on the afferent side? In other words, if the autonomic nervous system only has the efferent motor control, which it does, how, how is that whole process of homeostasis uh, realized and identified. And that has to do with our GVAs. Our GVAs are our general visceral afferent fibers. And they have um, sympathetic and parasympathetic-like fibers. They are, they are separate from the autonomic nervous system, but they provide feedback. So the term is general visceral afferent. We also have our general somatic afferents. And those play a huge role when it comes to micturition or bladder, for instance, the whole uh, process, the physiological process of how we empty our bladder and the neurology involved with that, which is amazing. But the sphincter, in other words, is, is controlled. The external sphincter, there's an internal and external, I'm jumping around here, but the external sphincter is regulated, of course, by our GSAs. And so, for instance, in uresis, when do we determine where should we adjust and why should we be in a parasympathetic versus sympathetic? Um, that has to do with understanding the GSAs and the GVAs and that feedback it has to the nervous system. So it gets complicated, Dr. Fowler. And this is complicated. <laughs> one, one of the things that always bothered me um, when I was first starting out and probably in, within my 10 years in practice I remember talking to Dr. Troxel a lot about this. I went to a, a Dr. Dan Murphy seminar. I took my whole year-long 
uh, spinal trauma training. And next to Gonstead, I, I was, that was the best experience of my life is to go through Murphy's, you know, training protocol and just understand the nervous system and tissue trauma and the residual healing and what happens with, with um, subluxation patterns and how it impacts our health. But coming back and, and being in Gonstead seminars and hearing some of the, the teaching, which so many times was recipe approach, where it was memorized, you know, where, well, this is what you do in this situation. That's what you do in that situation. I remember talking to Tiaba and saying, you know, I don't think, I think it's oversimplified. And I think we've made some mistakes on how we interpret uh, what's happening. And the more I'm learning, the more I realize I don't know what's happening. But the most important thing to learn is where is the major subluxation? Because you can have many minor subluxations that are compensatory in response to a major presenting subluxation. What does that mean? Well, here's what that means. If you have a um, sympathetic subluxation and that causes uh, what we're talking about in, in the digestive process, a duodenal ulcer, what happens now internally? See, we always we are, are so consumed with, you know, the the spine, the subluxation, and and what we do to influence that, but we don't consider too often enough what's happening happening internally within the viscous, within our endocrine and our organ systems. What's happening when you have a duodenal ulcer? There is tissue damage that goes on. And tissue damage is happening from inflammation. Okay, if you have, if you have uh, an alkaline environment in the stomach and that food is not properly digesting and assimilating, you're going to start to create distension, and that that is in the response with gas. And what does gas do? Gas has a tendency to rise in the in the stomach, so it goes up through the fundus of the stomach and it gets right into that gastroesophageal sphincter. And over time, that can cause such a weakening that we get what we call a, a, a hiatal hernia, where the sphincter itself starts to get over-distended and it stretches up beyond its boundary. Okay, when you have that internal environment going on in a, in a stomach that's dysfunctional, you have tissue damage. And the general visceral afferents respond to tissue damage on the sympathetic side of that. You have sympathetic fibers that are going to be engaged and responding. And what do we mean by that? Everything that we deal with in practice when it comes to nerve disturbance has to do with receptors and neurotransmitters. So everything is communicated that way. And I think we get so hung up on the mechanics of it that we, we don't think it through enough to where, what are we influencing with that neurotransmitter at that receptor site? So these GVAs are involved with feedback. They're telling us, telling our central nervous system what's happening internally so that it can monitor and regulate and try and maintain homeostasis. The body's always trying to seek homeostasis. So when you have this tissue damage in the stomach, you're going to fire up these sympathetic general visceral afferents because they respond to pain and inflammation. Whereas the parasympathetic general visceral afferents respond to stretch and distension. Okay. So when you have an initial injury from tissue damage and inflammation that's occurring in the stomach, truly as a result of a subluxation, we haven't even talked about altered foods that are influencing our, our whole gastrointestinal microbiome. We won't even have time to get into that. I wish we could, but we need to. But when you have that environment, you're going to have those sympathetic GVAs fired up, and they will feed in on the, on the uh, afferent side. They feed right back into the efferent side. So what does that mean? It facilitates our sympathetic observation of what's happening clinically. So in other words it feeds into further and further of the gas formation because you're firing up the whole sympathetic side. You're, you're reducing more of the digestive enzymes, less mucus, so that gets facilitated. 
Okay, now let's consider what happens after a while when you have all this gas. Because you don't have a proper breakdown and assimilation of nutrients in the stomach, it starts to form gas and gas rises. What does gas do? Well, we talked about it. It can create even a hiatal hernia. But in the process in between, it creates distension. And when you have a viscous that is stretched or distended, you are now going to engage the parasympathetic general visceral afferents. And they will fire up and they will do the same thing as the sympathetic GVAs, maybe to a lesser extent, because one of the things we don't completely understand is, is um, uh, the intensity of these, you know, neuroplasticity responses, which wins, which doesn't. But anyway, you're going to get the GVAs on the parasympathetic fibers firing and you're going to get them going on the efferent side in that whole loop, but they're also going to go right up the chain to the CNS. And that's going to go into the trigeminal nucleus. And that's where our, our, um, our, um, our relay synapse for the parasympathetic uh, upper cervical takes place. So how does that translate into clinical practicalities? Well, when you're running a scope and you've got a reading on T7 and you have what you believe to be a duodenal ulcer, and you run that instrument up and you find pressure in the upper cervical spine and you go, oh my goodness, I got a reading on C1 here. Hey, it's even on the left side. Maybe it's an ASLA listing because that we would think would affect the left vagus. Now you have to decide, doctor, which one do I adjust today? Okay. We just lost a recipe card and a technician a half a mile ago because we're not going to figure this out with that logic. You have to be a doctor you have to think through neurophysiology and understand what's going on. And that is, start with the patient's symptoms and what their complaints are. If you think you're dealing with a duodenal ulcer, but you're not completely sure, because what happens in practice, I ask, I'll ask a patient, well, how soon after eating does that bother you? Oh, sometimes, you know, it's right away, and sometimes it's a couple hours later. Well, which is worse? Well, I'm not too sure. You know, when you get one of those back and forth and you start scratching your head. Well, a very simple test would be send that patient home. And I've done this even before I've adjusted them. I send them home that night, get raw organic apple cider vinegar. When you have dinner tonight, have a teaspoon of that mixed in in a, maybe four to six ounces of water and take that with your meal. What do I want to know is, what I want to know is, is it helpful or does it make it worse? If it makes it worse, what are we thinking clinically? It's probably not a duodenal ulcer. It's probably a gastric ulcer, which we'll, we'll try and get to. Because you're adding essentially more digestive aid to an already hyperacidic environment, so it can make it worse. You don't have enough mucus lining around the, the lining of the stomach to prevent that. But if it helps them, now we're cluing into there is a lack of digestive aid in the stomach. And by simply increasing that that digestive aid, and that patient gets some benefit, my mind is thinking this is a sympathetic problem, right? We need to get the pressure off of the sympathetics and enable the secretions to take place. And so how do you then interpret a reading up top? That's the GVAs, the general visceral afferent phenomenon that's going on inside the stomach, first starting with tissue inflammation, and, and injury, and that creates over time an alkaline environment in the stomach, which creates the gas, which leads to distension, which now fires up the parasympathetic GVAs. And they find their way up to that trigeminal nucleus up in the upper cervical, especially it's just adjacent lateral uh, to the C1 transverse process. And now you've got a reading up there. Here's how you want to interpret that, doctor. That's a minor that's a minor adaptive pattern to this major subluxation that's happening likely within the, the T5 through 910 area of the, of the uh, thoracic spine. So it would be very inappropriate at that visit to try and adjust an atlas because you're not fixing the major subluxation pattern. You want to go after that. So it has to do with the thought process and understanding neurophysiology and when you have a visceral complaint, 
where do you begin? You have to break it down into what's happening neurophysiologically and then try and understand what can happen with the whole complaint process. Um, Another good example of that is a bladder infection. A bladder infection oftentimes starts with, um, you, you have to realize that, yes, you could say that there's a subluxation creating an environment within the bladder that's predisposing it to being susceptible to a bacterial overgrowth, especially because <clears throat> the bladder wall is not breaking down and, and the tone is poor and weak and it's not eliminating you know, what naturally gets into the bladder. So yeah, that's all part of it. But you have an infection in the bladder <clears throat> that's going to cause tissue damage. And that tissue damage, again, fires up the sympathetic general visceral afferent fibers. And that feeds into the, the appropriate uh, cord levels within most likely the L1, T12, all the way down to L2 uh, region. And we would interpret that as that, you know, if you've got a bladder infection, we'd need to adjust you there, most likely. <clears throat> but what also happens with a, a bladder infection and a sympathetic problem is the frequency. You always have to go, but there's never that much volume to void out of the bladder. That's because of the, of the relationship that these GVAs have with sphincters, internal and external, and the detrusor muscle of the bladder, and how that feedback from that internal environment fires into our spinal cord and has different responses within the sympathetic and parasympathetic structure. So the primary driving message with this is when you have something viscerally wrong and you have subluxation patterns in both the parasympathetic and sympathetic systems. Sometimes you have to make your best clinical guess at what is likely to be occurring and make your adjustment. But not in both systems, just in that one system that you think is the major. And maybe one or two times you adjust that. If you get a good set, if you feel like that's where that subluxation is and that set good, then that you want to leave alone and, um, and let nature respond and work, to, work with that for a, maybe a week or two before you would consider adjusting, you know, within the parasympathetics. Because you're, you start to mix systems and then you mess up not only the efferent side, but that whole general visceral afferent side that has adaptations to what is, you know, the major, the major clinical presentation. Yeah, and with everything you're saying, obviously specificity is key, making sure you find the right one in the right area, the one that's actually doing it. And it made me think that I know there's a lot of people um, who might think, well, if your whole goal is to get more sympathetic tone, more sympathetic output, why not just do an anteriority all the way up the spine and get hyperstimulation? And that'll right. make them better. So why is it that specificity for us is so important and why that general, I always call it carpet bombing, just hitting everything and hoping to get the right one. That actually oftentimes is more damaging than helpful. Why is that? How, do, how does that affect the nervous system? Dorsal lateral track of Lasauer. If we go back to our, our uh, CNS and understand that <clears throat> that particular area in the central nervous system is responsible for sensory uh, innervation for two or three or four segments, you know, above and below where a true pressure site has originated from. So in other words, this is the rationale and the reason for when a patient has pain in their spine, it's very hard to localize that for a patient on, on, on themselves. You'll ask them, where does it hurt? Well, they'll sometimes directly point to it, but oftentimes it's, it's in an area, it's in a region. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is the dorsal lateral tract of Lasauer. There is um, uh, overlapping sensory innervation from that primary uh, neurological site of involvement that can go two or three levels above and two or three levels below. And so that's why it's very um, deceptive and misleading on, on, on adjusting a patient in a few areas because it hurts there. That's absolutely, that's just stupid. It, it's not, there's no science to that. The more precise you are in identifying where that pressure is coming from, then you're truly going to correct the cause the origin of that, and the two or three segments above and below, which we have considered compensatory, 
in a mechanical term, um, they get better. But they also get better neurologically because that dorsolateral tract of Lasauer is less fired up. So I, I look at it like a um, when you have a um, oh tributaries tributaries that contribute to a river. Con, uh, it's a law of convergence. In other words, you have these little creeks that feed into a large river, and they contribute. But that's not where the, the river is coming from. It's, it's, they contribute to this great central flow in, in the river, so to speak. And that's the same thing. Where that primary nerve innervation is, it's in one segment. You have compensatory changes above and below that are misleading. So to not take the time and develop the art and science of, of pursuing specific analysis and adjusting you're going to over-treat, and I say treat, not fix, over-treat that patient, and they'll come back needlessly. And, and unfortunately, many times, you won't get it fixed. See, we try to teach in, in the Gonstead world, when we discuss things with patients, we like to use and interject the word, we want to fix that. There, there's a reason for it. We want to fix that pressure on the nerve. And, and how do you do that? By very precisely setting that particular vertebrae back onto the disc where it belongs. What we don't want to do is generally manipulate that area to try and stimulate or, or make a lot of movement and noise because that patient is going to have to keep coming back over and over again to get that same uh, response. And that's not truly chiropractic. That is general manipulation. It's osteopathy. It's unfortunately what's taught uh, too often in schools, and it, it is not a specific approach to correction. That's why the more you're in practice, you will adjust fewer areas less frequently with less force because you start to gain more and more of an appreciation of the human nervous system and structure and function in that relationship. So, yes, it's, it's so important uh, to do that. And, and, you know, another thing, Doc, is that so many of the students, it's so easy now um, to get caught up in the management, you know, of, of running a practice. It's not, it's not unlikely to have $200,000 in student debt coming out of school. And um, my goodness, what do you do? You know, you start to face, you know, just the economic stress of how to open a practice. So you see more and more group practices. But you also see more and more management uh, uh, folks involved with, hand-holding and, and trying to get you established and what to do. And I'm, I think there is a place for good, sound, ethical management because there's a lot of hats you have to wear to running a practice. And, um, but that, that management hat should never jump into our clinical life of telling you how to take care and manage a patient's condition to fix it. Absolutely. They should help you with answering the phone and scheduling and how do we get staff to work harmoniously together? And how do we provide, you know, a good experience for the patient? Those are all great things. But when it comes down to caring for your patient, that stays out of your adjusting room. It, do, it should not interfere with your ability to get that patient well. Because once you start to allow that to infringe into your clinical life, you're going to water it down and you're going to lose your passion and philosophy. And it ends up becoming just numbers. I don't, I don't want to do that. I, I want to, I, I believe we're here. I believe God put us here for a reason to, to help our, our brothers and sisters, you know, with chiropractic care. This is truly a gift. And how we utilize that is so important uh, to provide the right kind of care. And that message needs to get greater and greater so that more and more chiropractors and the students can understand chiropractic is specific. Dee Palmer said that chiropractic is specific or it's nothing at all. Mm -hmm. That's not, that was not truly just Gonsta. That was, that goes back to Palmer. So yeah, that's, that's why the rationale for being specific and, and anybody that's been in practice will attest to, you know, well, what do you do to, how you, what are you doing for, you know, management or blah, 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 or where are your numbers at? I hate that. I don't like talking about that. I don't want to do any of that. But these are the people that are always doing something. They're always having to get motivated to do something to be excited. You don't have to do that. Even in this 21st century, uh, uh, in, in watered-down healthcare, 
and insurance regulations. Um, you don't have to do that because it still comes down to it's an awful big world and people still have the same spines and nervous system and complaints. It's more complicated now because of our food and the chemicals, but they still have the same need for good specific chiropractic care. That sells itself. You don't have to put any bells and whistles on that. Your intentions have to be pure and right that you want to figure out what's wrong and fix that patient and then keep it maintained and supported, whatever that patient needs. Don't put them in a recipe approach that everybody has to come back once a week for the rest of your life. What's in the best interest of the patient should be what drives our clinical day-to-day practice. That will take care of your practice and, and your life if you just do that. People are very smart, intelligent, and they will trust you. If you can earn that trust, you deserve it. And then whatever you do, do everything you can never to lose that trust. And that gives you an opportunity. Dr. Troxell said that, I know I can fix most everybody that comes in if they just give me enough time. Mm -hmm. How do you get enough time from a patient? If you have their respect. And what if you don't have that patient, new patient's respect just yet? Well, the patient that referred them in or endorsed you, pass that along to them. And they are, they are, weighing in on that trust from their friend, that trusted friend that said, you go see Dr. Fowler because he can fix that. That's what you want to have in a successful practice. It has nothing to do with an ego. It has everything to do with a passion for finding where that subluxation is and telling the patient the truth about it and fixing it. And, um, and, and the patients will take care of you and they'll give you the time that you need to figure it out because that's why we call it a practice. You can't always get it right the first time. Sometimes it takes, you know, an effort to get there. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, uh, I appreciate it. I know you got to get back to seeing patients again, but I think that's going to be hugely beneficial for a lot of people. It was, I think you did a great job of illustrating my point that if we oversimplify, we're going to miss a ton. And yeah. just looking at that, it's like, yeah, if we, if we don't want to oversimplify and obviously our brains are geared towards that. We want to simplify because it makes things easier and it's a natural tendency and it's good to an extent. You just can't let it go too far. Um, but when you keep it, when you, when it's kind of like a cycle, like what you're saying, if you're focusing on specific adjusting, then you're going to want to focus more on a specific diagnosis. And the more you focus on a specific diagnosis, the more value you're going to see in the specific adjustment. And it just keeps feeding each other back and forth. You know, I think, Doc, um, I don't know what our time frame is, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay here yet. But it's just, I think, important to relay just the, the cause of a subluxation, you know, the origination of it and just the neurological sequence of events that takes place. So often, um, as, as chiropractors, we're not the first visit that a patient might have. And so oftentimes we hear in their history, well, this is 5, this is 10, this is 15, 20 plus years ago. And um, this is what they've been doing to try and manage, you know, their, their complaints and condition. But understanding a subluxation, when you first get injured in a subluxation process, um, everything we learn about with the Gonstead system as far as why is it so important to learn about listings and why is it so important to do initial feel on motion palpation to try and determine where that vertebrae is misaligned and, and how that's affecting the disc. It's because of the influence it has on the disc. And the disc is the most primary tissue injury site. And when that disc is injured, there's a two to three day process of time where there's bleeding and inflammation. And that's when those symptoms manifest the greatest during that two to three day period of time. After a two to three, three day period of time with these injuries, you have uh, the repair process that starts to begin. And the first sequence that takes place is regeneration. And what's happening in the regenerative phase of tissue repair is those crisscross fibers in the disc where there's micro traumas and tears, they are healing. And the body is replacing that with collagen. It's a glue. And that six to eight week period of time is, is crucial for that collagen formation to take place. If we aren't able to intervene with correcting that subluxation, setting that bone back in the proper alignment on the disc so that normal mechanical movement can be reestablished, then that six to eight week period of time, unfortunately, 
allows or provides for that that healing to occur poorly. And it starts forming myofibrositis. And myofibrositis does a couple of things. <clears throat> Over a period of time, it starts to constrict or shrink those annular fibers of the disc. And that can lead them up to a thousand times more pain sensitive. And so that's the reason why you have tissue degradation or degenerative changes on that disc, because you have these, these uh, uh, annular fibers that become more stiff and rigid. They shrink in size. And that does not enable complete biomechanical range of motion. And so you have this impairment in movement. And that just furthers the process over time of degrading those, those disc fibers. Well, many times that's when we jump in and we see this patient. The other thing that happens when you have that breakdown is, is uh, these annular fibers act like semiconductors. And, and the research is very clear about this, that they have an affinity for inflammation. And that inflammation then is more easily found in these, these degenerative recesses, you know, within the disc. So that creates a neurological sequence of events that, you know, we, just, we don't have enough time to get into now, but you have altered thresholds. You have, you have hypersensitivity, both peripherally at that tissue site within, the, within that, that joint itself, but also centrally, especially within lamina um, uh, two, a substantia gelatinosa, where we have that, that uh, synapse uh, that crosses over in the thalamus and it goes up to our brain and it lets us know it hurts here. And of course it does other things, but that pathway gets more facilitated. And that's where we develop that neuroplasticity towards chronic pain. And those pain pathways share the same pathways as our mechanoreceptors, our, our tissue proprioceptors. And uh, there's a difference between pain and mechanoreception. And pain fibers are smaller. They fire slower versus mechanoreceptors are about 17 times larger and they fire uh, many times greater uh, than, than those, those uh, other uh, pain fibers. So they share the same spinal thalamic pathway. So when you have a subluxation, especially when it's chronic, What's been happening over time is you have less and less movement, therefore impaired mechanoreception. You have greater and greater facilitation of this tissue myofibro myofibrositis, which leads to more of that sensory disafferentation, chronic pain that we call subluxation that has peripheral and systemic ramifications, especially once it gets into the hypothalamus. And so now we go in to make that adjustment. And that corrective adjustment is the same thing that happens when we're in a bathtub and, and the water gets too hot. What do we instinctively do? <laughs> you turn the dial down to cooler so you don't burn yourself. And that's what we do when we correct that subluxation. We are increasing the mechanoreceptive facilitation and pathway. And because they, the, those, the diameter of the fiber, excuse me, it's twice as large as a pain fiber. Because it's twice as large and it fires 17 times faster, just that little specific, the key is specific, corrective adjustment can engage, fully engage that joint mechanoreceptive pathway to overcome the, the, uh, the tissue disafferent pain pathway. We know that as the gate theory of pain. We all learned that in school, discovered in 1965, McKelzek and Wald. Wonderful discovery and under, helping us to understand, you know, if you smack your thumb and it hurts, why rubbing around that area feels better? Because you're stimulating tissue mechanoreceptors that fire off in that same spinal thalamic pathway. But that's what our adjustment does. So the more precise and specific we are on isolating that one segment to influence that one damaged disc that's creating this whole plethora of neurological, you know, ramification uh, is huge. And the more precise you are in correcting that, the less often you'll need to see that patient and the better correction and fix you're going to get for a long-term stability. Um, that's what we're all about. Every, it's what we're all about. It's all neurological.
And so that's the, that's the reason why we preach and promote and try and practice being specific. Uh, that's just what chiropractic needs to be. And the more specific you are, the more you start to learn about how you're helping the patient and, and let the rest of the, of the needless things go. Let other people do that. There's place for that. But we need good chiropractors that are, are able to identify and fix these subluxation patterns and truly, you know, bring that to the patient. Yeah, I think that's important to understand because um, a lot of times we sometimes simplify into thinking that maybe a thoracic subluxation is not as damaging as, say, a pelvis subluxation or an upper cervical subluxation. And the reality is they're every bit as damaging. And sometimes it's just that they're more stealthy. And that's why we don't associate them the same. And yet a thoracic and messing up a thoracic, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a gimme and it's not something we should take for granted. So that I, I appreciate you highlighting that fact and showing that it really is a big deal to get the thoracics right and to, and to treat them with a lot of respect as any subluxation. Absolutely. That's right. So thank you once again for joining me. I very much appreciate it. I think people are going to learn a ton from this. Um, and we will definitely have you back on <laughs> to talk about other complicated things. <laughs> so thank yeah. you once again. Well, thanks for having me, Dr. Fowler. And it was good to be with you. Thank you. I want to thank Dr. Geary once again for joining me. I took a lot of great notes from what he had to say, and I hope you did too. Specificity in every area of the spine should always be paramount. My wife has a great saying that the person who knows how will always work for the person who knows why. I think Dr. Geary did a great job of helping us to understand the why. I've talked to you a lot about the Gonstead Extravaganza, but I need to let you know that due to COVID, it has now been moved to the weekend of September 19th and 20th. We have lots of great things planned, so it'll be an amazing time. The good news is, there's still time to make plans if you're a chiropractic student or a practicing doctor. We would love to see you there. I hope that once again, you have the best week possible, and we'll see you again next time.